I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. I really like Tarantino's high concept stuff, but I really wish at some point he had done like, you know, okay, it's not like I want Tarantino to do this. I've always wanted to kind of do a thing like this, but like a really high concept science fiction movie. He, he needs to do a sci-fi movie next. Really needs to do like a high, like it's all about the visuals and the the vignettes and uh, not this universe destroying plot. I'm, it's I'm like, sad that he didn't do Westworld as the next Tarantino movie. He needs to do Cowboy Bebop is what I'm saying. Oh, oh. fuck yes. Yeah. Yes. I was thinking when you said sci-fi that he had to do something that was decidedly 1970s. You could totally do Logan's Cowboy Run. Bebop as a 1970s I, sci-fi movie, and it would completely fucking work. I'm in agreement with you that that Cowboy Bebop is a Tarantino-esque post Pulp Fiction, post uh, Reservoir Dogs yeah. style narrative. It definitely yeah. is. Okay, so I'm gonna out myself here and say that I actually have never seen or read or anything of Cowboy Bebop, and you'll have to explain it to me and why Tarantino is appropriate for it. No, you know, you know, know what we do? We don't show him any of the cartoons. We don't show him any of the the like the visual stuff. We play Yoko Kano's theme song. Yeah, uh, yes, and that's yes. it. We just play that. The, we play the intro music for Cowboy Bebop, and we go. That is why Quentin Tarantino needs to do a live action Cowboy Bebop with Japanese actors. All right, let's do it. That's my idea. Yeah, I can see it. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, definitely something I could see Tarantino doing. When was Cowboy Bebop made? 90s. 90s? Yeah. Okay. I don't know. that The anime, honestly, has one of those blind spots for me. I could see that. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I haven't kept up on anime in a way that I would like to have because I lost most of my sources, but... Yeah, it's it's one of those weird things. I guess for me, I never, I never had the anime friend. Yeah, and I think it's kind of like having a dealer. No, the it's way totally these things like operate is yeah. that I, weirdly enough, I never had a comic book friend though either. So I was self motivated there, but I guess I was that person for other people. Right. If if at all, but yeah, um, I could see Tarantino doing that. I was thinking like uh, Rollerball. Oh no, he could totally do rollerball. Yeah, but they, but they did do a no, rollerball like no. soft reboot oh, in like oh, 2008 oh. or something, right? Didn't Death they? Race 2000. And no, they've already done Corbin, Death Race, and, and Corman is doing another one too. Oh yeah, Death Race 2049. Death Race, yeah. Death Race 2000 is not a Corman film. 
No, the the newest one though is. Yeah, it's like Death Race 2050. Really? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Excuse me, while I go wash my jeans. Also, it's yeah. low budget too. It looks, it's definitely low budget. Well, no, sure. I actually I suppose I should re- restate that I would really like to see uh, Quentin Tarantino do space opera, possibly because I'm pretty sure he hates space opera. I could see it definitely. I'd want him to go in a pre-Star Wars direction with it. Right, right, right. Uh, I, I think I think Star Wars is the antithesis of what actually Quentin Tarantino kind of undergirds. Well, I don't want it to be spectacle. I mean, there's no, things I that want, happen. I want spectacle. I want these these weird uh, character vignettes. I want these the the quirky stuff. Like I want to see that kind of thing, but with the strong plot that Tarantino does now, but mostly a, a, a character and actor driven sort of production. I guess what I'm saying in terms of spectacle, the way I'm defining that word is okay. that the post Lord of the Rings cinema experience where I don't want something that has giant CGI armies and a massive scale. I don't want it to be for the fate of all humanity. No, no, exactly so. I don't want it to be a digital effects orgasma ganza. And uh, and have it be about like I like I said I literally want to be character driven, not a universal. I'm totally with you on that, okay. absolutely. Because I want him to keep the sense of scale that he typically has in things. Yeah. That he's doing World War II, but he's doing World War II on his. I mean, it's his terms. He's not doing. Uh, he's doing a western, and there are pieces of Django that feel big, but the scale is really just he's fighting twenty guys inside of like a plantation house. If there is any, if there is. Any baryonic matter on Earth capable of breaking this stranglehold on science fiction that Star Trek and Star Wars have created, Quentin Tarantino is that collection of molecules. I guess I I want more small scale stories mm-hmm. on the. Well, you're going to get that, aren't you? Now with yeah. Rogue One. Well, yeah, but I mean, I think it's still going to be a big big moment. They're going to be a big sci fi. You have to have that with Star Wars. If you put yeah, yeah. Star Wars in the name and it's not a novelization, it's not a comic. You have to do Star Wars scale. And with Tarantino, I guess I want something that feels big and it feels important, mm-hmm. but it's not playing for those stakes. It's playing for more personal stakes. Yeah. I mean, that's. I think that's part of the reason why a lot of our favorite science fiction movies end up being short stories, because you can't do... A universe-spanning existential... Well, you can, but it doesn't really work out the same way. A universe-spanning existential crisis in 50 pages. Yeah. Which is why we were talking about this downstairs with uh, the, the one of the movies I really want to do for uh, Podcast La Vista is Philip K. Dick's We Can Remember, Remember It For You Wholesale is probably my favorite short story by him, and it's not the enormous universe-scaling thing... It's even smaller scale than Total Recall is. Yeah. Total Recall is interesting because it has a big enough scale, but it doesn't have a massive scale. Right. Again, the, and I love the Lord of the Rings movies, and it's going to sound like I'm being far more negative about them than I am. Mm. I love the movies themselves because the scale is appropriate to the thing they're adapting. Right. But the impact that they had on other movies, I think, is by large negative because CGI armies became... A thing you put in a movie, even if it wasn't appropriate. Like, right. Noah's Ark had a fucking CGI army with trolls in it. We need to watch this movie, I think. Yeah. 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 The, uh, what was the other that, one? You know, that's an Ask an Atheist uh, <laughs> Crossover? <Patreon. laughs> yeah. The the other one being- Russell. Uh, Russell. 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 He, as another guy yeah. who's like a crazy man who says the world's going to end. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's doing that a lot lately. 
the the other one being the Alice in Wonderland Tim Burton reboot has a fucking wait, army wait, wait, in no, it. No, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I just heard that uh, that uh, Mel Gibson is back in pod uh, okay. form. In po- <laughs> oh, Mel Gibson. I mean, he's got uh, was it Hacksaw Ridge is the the next movie that he's in. That is a movie about. A conscientious objector who is a surgeon during the Second World War, um, Mel Gibson is back on top. Okay, I have to see it first. What, what has, Mel- has Pepe the Frog like knocked yes. him off the apex of anti-Semitism? <laughs> I, I think Pepe the Frog just imploded. Is what happened? Okay, I, okay. I just want to say I feel bad for the Pepe the Frog thing. <laughs> right? No, the, the guy who wrote it, uh, whose name immediately escapes me when I want to say his name, uh, just did an op op-ed in Time about how pissed off he is about this whole Pepe the Frog So Pepe thing. the Frog was just a character who liked to get high. Feels that good. Was, he was a frog who liked to get no, high. And he, he also did something you specifically really fucking hate, mm-hmm. and that's take your pants all the way off when you urinate. Oh, God, that bothers that's me. That's the source of the feels good. Okay, Pepe. I just want to say, I, I let Pepe. that stuff pass if it's like a five-year-old kid because maybe they can't handle that. It still makes me uncomfortable to walk in on that. <laughs> so a teenage it, stoner frog. Okay, when it's an adult, it's yeah. fucking unnerving. Okay. I don't know if you've ever walked into a bathroom and you're suddenly looking at an ass, nudity by and large has to be opt in, not opt out. The thing you are describing is exactly the thing that brought Peppy the Frog yeah. to internet prominence. See, I'm, and, I'm fine with and it as a Mike, fictional character. I'm going to tell you the same thing that mm. everybody else has told you. Feels good, man. <laughs> I. Do it at home, man. Just do it at home. <laughs> I do. I, you don't even don't take it to your local Barnes and Noble. Yeah, no, at home don't I completely it. disrobe. What are you talking about? Don't, don't do it on the copy of uh, Arnold, Schwar- Jack. Arnold Schwarzenegger's uh, Weightlifter's Bible in the bathroom of a Barnes and Noble. No, don't, don't do it there. No, don't don't pee on things. Is a general rule. Uh, not unless you belong to. That's gonna be very you. difficult. You gotta you gotta pee into nothingness. Only pee in authorized. Piss containment units. <laughs> yeah, and if you're going to piss on yeah. property, make it your own property. Oh. Because there's really no saving anything that's been pissed on. Fair enough. It, it's it's a sort of thing that even if you can clean it, you can't really clean it. Yeah. Not really. Yeah. Not in your mind. That piss is still there, my friend. <laughs> but the, uh, well, I don't even know what the fuck we were talking about now. I think you know that, oh, no. <laughs> Mel Gibson. Okay, Mel Gibson. If you're going to say how this guy got back on top. Yeah. He's got a climb, and he has got a long, long climb because, I don't know, I try not to inject all of my opinions on somebody's views outside of their movies into their movies, but with people like, say, Tom Cruise, it's hard not to. Right. Especially when he does a lot of, like, space savior movies. Yeah, that, it, it yeah. drags up a lot of a lot of parallels there. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, but with Mel Gibson, I find that... The time between him being Martin Riggs and being the guy who I saw in the news being drunk and screaming at a cop or yelling anti-Semitic things at his wife and just being a, a generally abusive bully. Yeah. The time between is- those t- those two poles, I think it's like the movie Signs is where I draw the line. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and anything after about the year 2002, he looks too much like belligerent anti-Semite racist. Right. Bill I- Gibson and less like... Oh, I'm a crazy cop on the edge. I think for me it was the Patriot. Yeah. Oh. Roland Emmerich? Yeah. What does he know about America? 
What does he well, know? Well, quite a bit. Yeah, he did make the uh, Independence Day movies. <laughs> he made the Independence <laughs> Day movies. I mean, he's exploded Washington, D.C. more than anybody else yeah, in history. He gets history. a lot of those landmarks yeah. in Didn't he there. also do a movie about... Uh, he got so bored of it, he made it ironic in 2012. He, yeah. Shakespeare? He moved, moved about Shakespeare? Right? Oh, he did. The real make... author. The, who is the real author of the song? I thought you were comparing well, uh, Roland Emmerich to wait, Shakespeare. Wait, are you suggesting Roland Emmerich is the true author of the works of Shakespeare? Uh, n- no, I think he was a highfalutin enough filmmaker to think that he could take on Shakespeare as a topic. Oh, I just want to say here. And he was Roland Emmerich. Man, I would totally watch Roland Emmerich's Hamlet. Okay, I haven't yeah. seen this movie that he did. I don't know it's Hamlet. It's something on Shakespeare, but... What did he do? I don't. I, I have no idea what we're talking about. I know I've heard it. It's a movie about who, like, um, who is the the real author of? Is, there's a conspiracy theory about the author of? Oh, is this that Francis Bacon thing? Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, oh, he did the movie about the Francis Bacon. Okay, right, right, the right. The conspiracy theory that Shakespeare didn't write his own plays. Does that count he as did, a conspiracy theory? He did a movie theory? about a conspiracy theory. Okay, does so, that count as a conspiracy theory? Now this no, other bloke wrote it. That's no. not a conspiracy theory. No. That's a. But yeah. if there's a cover up. That's usually what makes a conspiracy well, theory. Well, it's pretty easy to cover things up when everybody's dead. That, that is true. Which is most of the plots of Roland Emmerich films. But uh, the thing with Roland Emmerich is that occasionally somebody who is not good makes something a thing that is good. I mean, we've said this before. Zack Snyder, we have opinions. Um, you made me what? Is that how I'm doing? <laughs> you, you made me what? That's it. I'm going to... So, I guess I got to watch that now. Oh, jeez. I won't. I'm not making you. You're go, you're walking into that hole. Um <laughs> but I was going to say that the uh the fact that Zack Snyder also made the Dawn of the Dead remake, which is not a masterpiece, but it's good. It was also written by James Gunn. Our friend Paul Rue is going to go on the record and say that he gives it to James Gunn, of course, the director of Guardians of the Galaxy. Well, yeah, and- James Gunn is in a lot. He did like Super and Slither. Slither. Yeah, he's like he's, he's got credits where yeah, he's a good writer. Yeah. He's good at that stuff. So, you know, a bad director, or at least a, I'm going to say a, a director who's into flash and not substance, like Zack Snyder, he should probably be making uh, music videos. Because he has a visual style. The problem is, is that I think Zack Snyder, and we've said this a thousand times, this is nothing new, is all about a person who is not especially smart or introspective, trying to make really deep movies about themes, but... He only has a tendency to see the very superficial levels of the things that he's either adapting. Right. And I think he has kind of a very shallow view of things. And it, a lot of it is he puts too many things in with the, attempt, with the intent of making it cool. Right. And he misses the point of a lot of the things he adapts, like Watchmen and Batman v Superman. And there's a lot of these things that he's just not very good at, but he makes a lot of bad things look kind of cool. And uh, But the Dawn of the Dead remake has the least slow-mo of any of his movies I've ever seen. It has the best writing because it starts with a good script. I mean, if right. you have a bad script, a, you know, not written by, what is the name of the guy who writes all of those things for, for DC? Goyer? Yeah, David, David S. Goyer. Goyer. Yeah, yeah, David S. Goyer. Uh, every time he opens his mouth, despite the guy having this reputation for, I'm the expert on superheroes in Hollywood, so I wrote like tens of thousands of these scripts. Since like 1998. Yeah, he's been doing Blade this forever. Blade was the first one he did. He did Blade, I think he did uh, one of, I think, did he do Batman Begins? I, either way, I think a lot of it comes down to him having this reputation for being the go-to guy for superheroes. Every interview I've ever heard with him talk about superheroes 
has him not only miss the point, but miss it in such a way that it makes me hate him. No. Because there's a real disdain for nerds and the source material. And I don't think you need to be totally, you know, like, oh, dare you touch upon my sacred, you know, scripture. But I think you should fucking like the things that you make rather than have this philosophy while writing and directing that Zack Snyder shares of this thing is broken. I'm going to make it not lame for you guys. Well, no, he clearly really loves Frank Miller. I mean, he would clearly would skin Frank Miller and wear him as a suit. He really likes Frank Miller. He thinks he can one-up Frank Miller, apparently, mm-hmm. but that's what he likes. I mean, cause for whatever faults we find in Frank Miller, and there are there are a few, <laughs> there are a lot of things that don't age well uh-huh. in Miller. How come all of the socialists don't accept my storylines for their fights in in riots? Yeah, it's it's weird because... I, I don't know why I've decided Frank Miller sounds like this. Okay. Yeah, um, I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But I think a lot of it is that Frank Miller underneath his many personal flaws right. and a lot of the more problematic elements in some of his older works is a craftsman. And writes great stories. So are are you making the craftsman versus artist delineation? No, I think you can be both. I think he's a craftsman and an artist. Okay. But I think he also is a little bit of a walking garbage fire of a person. And you can be all of these things all at once. (laughs) I think that you can take Zack Snyder. I don't think he's a terrible person. Right. I think he's a not introspective person who is not as deep as he thinks he is. I sometimes wonder if Frank Miller is aiming for Bukowski. I don't know. I think Frank Miller is mm. aiming at Mickey Spillane. Ah, fair. I think that there's... Um, we had this conversation with an, an episode of, of our friend Joe Preddy's uh, podcast, uh, View from the Gutters, that we appeared on to talk about Sin City. Ding! Oh, he's a great guy. You should yeah. listen to View from the Gutters. Right. Joe's an awesome guy. We went on there to talk about Sin City. Unfortunately, the episode had some technical issues and they didn't. I weren't able to release it. I, and, I know nothing about those sorts of things. Oh, so, uh, yeah. It's technology. What can you do? Yeah. It happens. <laughs> and um, <laughs> it's, you know, it's the dangers of podcasting. Yeah, yeah. You, sometimes you hazard, talk. We don't know good hazard pay, unfortunately. Yeah. Because we're That's, sitting in a, a safe room. Yeah, yeah. That uh, is, is basically, at its worst, just kind of stuffy. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if it's totally safe. I was almost getting ready to do my old my own Far- Farnham's freehold thing with the storm that was supposed to hit Tacoma today. Yeah, that was disappointing. That was kind yeah. of the phantom menace of uh, natural disasters. Yeah, we spent how many weeks talking about Storm Mageddon and how it was going to come and going to be hur- hurricane level gales of wind and yeah. we should expect power outages. And- I built a lamp. Yeah. See. That did not happen. It it was the biggest buildup to just disappointment. That yawn is exactly correct. That is is precisely what happened. But uh, Uh, Frank Miller, you're getting into the Frank Miller comparison. Oh, shit, yeah. Uh, Frank Miller is actually good at what he does. The comparison that our friend Joe made on uh, Frank Miller's stuff, and he made this also about Batman, I think it's true of Frank Miller's work all across the board, which is that the longer you go without reading Frank Miller's comic books the more of a negative impression you're left with. I, okay. That you remember things like, okay, that was kind of an iffy treatment of women in that story, or, oh, that was kind of fascist, or, oh, well. I think the caveat is that someone needs to be a Frank Miller fan at some point in their lives, Mm -hmm. which is not me. I didn't like, he did Batman Year One, yeah? Yes, he did, and it's amazing. I didn't, I don't agree. Okay, so that, 
Then it could was, be it could be like a Anne Rand sort of thing. Yeah, where I, where you where you you like Frank Miller in the youth when you do not understand a certain stripe yeah. of the world. But I, think, I can see that. I think there's a bit of a, a Frank Miller redshift that happens, which is mm. that the farther you get away from it, the more the memory of the negative stuff is vivid and everything else kind of falls away. Right. And then when you actually reread Dark Knight Returns, because I went on the record a couple times saying that I thought Dark Knight Returns was the most overrated comic of all time, mm-hmm. and I caught some heat for that, I, I'm not as willing to say that I'd say that it is overrated in terms of you shouldn't compare it to something like, say, Watchmen or Mouse or Persepolis. Sure. But I think it's really, really good. And, uh, well, it's, uh, certainly, that, it's certainly very important. It's important. But it's, I, it's actually interesting because there is no Marvel story, there's no Marvel arc that I would be willing to sort of put in competition with that as competitive in the genre. He is unique. I, I would. I would not. I would. There was no other arc I'd be willing. To I'll put give him that over and yeah. above. Over and above Miller. There are not. There are not many artists that have his voice. No. No. And he has a very specific voice. Yeah. I think that when you read his stuff and it hasn't been ten years, uh, what I found, and I think Joe said this, and I agree with it, which is that um, it's way better than you remember. And there's all this craftsmanship, and there's all of this just excitement and pacing and all these things that he's just amazing at. Right. But all the negative stuff you remember is all still true. I guess, I I, I think part of it is that my introduction to Frank Miller was Zomg, uh, sorry, Z-O-M-G. Um, <laughs> they did a homosexual rape scene in some comic and it was Frank Miller and it was kind of, it was like in the 90s mm. and I was in the middle of, like I was a member of the GSA and it was, it was like kind of a big fight, like, please try not to burn my friends. Um, and what comic books need are is a homosexual rape scene in a comic that isn't meaningful. It's like I it's like, all right, yeah, I was I was I guess I was saying is kind of disinclined to like Frank Miller from the start, from my perspective. Oh, I I don't begrudge anybody that. And okay. if you read anything that he actually says about current issues outside of Batman stories. Right. There's a lot to dislike. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm able to say that. Well, okay, you know what we're, you know what we're talking about here. We haven't said it yet, and I'm hate to bring it up myself, but I did kind of coin the phrase. We're talking card line. Yeah, yeah, yep. it is a card line issue. Yep. Yeah. I think that um, for me, there are things. The less of Frank Miller's personality, not just his craft and stuff. Like you read Dark Knight Returns, there's clearly a satiric vibe to it. Uh, when you read things that he's written yeah. later, where he's making fun of the things that he's doing, he's going outright, yeah, I'm doing a Mad Max story, I'm doing a thing with cr- you know wimpy, cringing liberals and this big fascist guy, and I'm, I'm sort of taking this thing where Ronald Reagan is literally his elderly man going around on a red, white, and blue, like... I didn't. Don't, it was segways didn't exist then, but that's what he had the giant red, you know, flag uh, bathrobe on and these crazy things. And wait, I don't know this one. Oh, Ronald Reagan's a character in Dark Knight Returns. I didn't read it all the way through. Apparently, I need to read harder. It's weird, and that's the sort of stuff that goes. Yeah, he's having fun with these conventions, and he knows that it's crazy right wing. But somewhere along the line, it became not satire to him. Okay, and you can read the sequel he did to Dark Knight Returns, Dark Knight Rise, not that one, Dark Knight. Um, it is Dark Knight Strikes Again was the name of the one he did in like two thousand two, two thousand three. Yeah, I remember you complaining about that. It's it's shitty. Um, yeah. A lot of it is that it feels like a Batman chick tract. It it doesn't have that satiric vibe. It's about how Superman is dumb, and uh, Batman is better. 
And like a lot of chick tracks, it ends with Superman basically in tears, selling Batman that he's right about everything. Are you and willing to reject Batman or Superman and accept Batman as your lord and savior? Check, pretty much. Check the proper box. Yeah. And then mail it to nobody because nobody cares. Yeah. And then you get into stuff like All-Star Batman and Robin, and it's just, it's bonkers. Yeah, you told me to avoid All-Star. Oh, like herpes. Yeah. It's, which is weird, because All-Star Superman was so great. It is. Uh, All-Star Batman pretty much killed that imprint. The idea of the oh, All-Star run all was right. that you are giving a, a storied creator, somebody with a lot of skill, a, an iconic character, giving them total free reign to create their own continuity and say, we, you know, it doesn't have to mesh up with stuff that we're doing in all the other comics. Just do your thing. Do the Frank Millerius thing that you can. Do the Grant Morrisonius thing that you can. And, you know, Frank Miller kind of started, and the idea was, oh, my God, Frank Miller is coming back to Batman. And this was a big deal because he kind of revolutionized that character in the 80s. Ah, and what came out of it, honestly, is a lot of people have talked about it as if it's bad on purpose. Like, people don't really know how to react to it. So there are a lot of people who are buying it ironically. But hasn't he, like, strongly defended it since? Yeah. That's the part where it's a little bit weird, and you yeah. you take a lot of the themes in there, and it's hard to take this as satiric, where he's also blasting people who are in the Occupy you know movement. and fucking weird that I just realized? I hate movies now. I don't want to go to movies. I don't like movies. Are you I'm... talking about the theater experience, or are you talking about a two-hour narrative experience? Yes. Like, the whole movie concept is just sort of, is just, is sort of the antithesis of what I want to do, and I think comic book movies are a large part of what led me to this path. Okay, explain. I don't know that I can yet. I'm still exploring it. Okay, so... But the, like, the, like, the, like big box office, like Friday well, night the, the, premiere, The same reason you and I wanted to want Quentin Tarantino to do a space opera movie that isn't existential in nature. Mm -hmm. It's like every fucking movie the world is destroyed, or every fucking movie somebody has to... You know, it's like all the movies that I used to like that used to be small because nobody had budgets are now huge and enormous and stupid, where... And and I, I blame comic books for that. And so talking about comic book movies, I want to get mad and set things on fire. I assumed that would extend to comic books themselves, but as we are having this discussion, I am discovering it does not. This is my ire is specifically at comic book movies well, and not comic books. Well, I think a lot of it may be this. I, this is just me throwing an idea out there. I don't know if this is your actual reason. But. Okay. Comic books are interesting because they've always had an unlimited budget. It was right. really just the skills of the artist and the imagination of the writer. That right. If you want Superman to throw a chain around the planet and tow it through space, he can. And it looks great. It matches up with the rest of the art because you don't have to create that image with a special effect. You just draw it. Right. And you can do things that big. But the weird thing with comic books, too, is that. Once they found out that they could do that, the way that you know movies discovered that with CGI, they could create entire worlds inside of a computer, and you could put characters literally anywhere, with sets that you could never build, with special effects you could never do, with stunts that you would never put a person in danger to try that. Mm -hmm. And I think that they just said, okay, since we have that power, let's do everything and always push it to the max rather than go, well, let's use this power when it's necessary to the story. So many things are happening on the screen at all times. Exactly. It's like just because you can do it doesn't mean you have to do all of it all the time. Right. And you can do a CGI thing. Let's just say, for instance, I have a scene where 
I just want to have a, a regular hard-boiled crime drama and a character shoots another character in the head and I wanted to have a cool shot where you can see all the way the bullet trail through the guy's head. Um, I use my special effects there. It looks great. But it's not set against an entire army of guys getting shot through the head and you get kind of desensitized to things being big. I think comic books, weirdly enough, um, are allowed to be quirky in a way that movies aren't because the money that goes into movies is so big. And the fact that the budget of the advertising for a movie is sometimes even bigger than the production budget for the movie itself. I don't think you're wrong, but can I offer a counter concept? Is that comic books force a narrative where movies don't necessarily need a narrative. Okay. Where it's like, it's a book. I mean, yes, it's visual. It's incredibly visual. Comic books are an incredible visual medium. Uh, uh, back me up here, Casey. I don't know. Because like, I'm le- totally leaning on your film school stuff here. Where uh, books, you, they're linear, and the pace is set by the person flipping the pages. So in order to drive the page flipping, you need a freaking narrative. With a movie, it happens whether you're paying attention or not. You can just have stuff happen. Yeah. And you can make some awesome stuff happen. Look at all the stuff. I mean, I, 300 million individually rendered pieces of stuff. I'm, Look at the trillions of polygons. Sorry. Yes. Isn't, I mean, isn't that why the best adaptation of Dune, for example, is at this point in time the sci-fi channel adaptation? It's just the it's just the sheer number of frames, yeah. the sheer amount of time you're able to give to something, which is why there are some there's some oh. narratives through comic books that are best served by the fact that they can they could be the product of five years of storytelling, versus you know ninety minutes. Well, I think the other thing too is I think that yeah no I think that's I hadn't considered that I think that's a very good point. It's I tend to like really long films. I do. I think that you know that movies obviously have to end because there's n- nobody's going to go sit into a, in a room that isn't their own home. Nobody binge watches at a movie theater, not unless you're squatting in that theater. But I mean, nobody <laughs> right. nobody has right. goes in and says, "I'm going to go to the Cineplex Odeon and I'm going to watch the entire season one of Breaking Bad all in a row." But the the oh, beautiful yeah, thing, a lot of people have paid good money for that. I think the comic books and I'd say television through just the necessity of the lack of budget. Our comic books are really good at knowing when to go big and when to go small. Sometimes, at least, I wouldn't say they're perfect at it. A lot of comic books, I like to say, the Jeff Johns run on Green Lantern is the opposite, where it just got so big that it got exhausting over time. Right. You have to mix the big with the small. It's one of the reasons that I love um, what people have done with Doctor Who. That you can do a story that's about all of space and time burning. Or you can do a story where the Doctor just saves three people on a space station. Well, the fact that you have a... The, it, it helps in Doctor Who that you have this magical machine that can just destroy context or continuity at any given time. It's like, done now! Now it's the 16th century. That really helps. Yeah, and you can do a story that has a small scale and you can do a story that has a yeah. big scale. And the big scale stories desensitize you if there's too many of them in a row. Yeah. One of the things I really love about the old Chris Claremont X-Men books is that whenever they would have a big story in X-Men, like a massive crossover, somebody died or a planet blew up or something, the next issue of the X-Men would have Chris Claremont just writing the team unwinding. They would work through some character things. They'd play baseball 
which was something they did all the time back in the day, they would hang out or they would explore things or the, the team would just go shopping to a mall and there'd be a story about them going to the mall. And you kind of needed that stuff to unwind. And the movies nowadays, because I think they feel they have to compete with all of this entertainment that's yeah. laid out before us, including streaming, television. And not only does it have to compete with it, it demands that you pay $10 to participate, that to go in, you have to spend money. Yeah. And the this idea that you have to convince people that there's a thing you can get in a movie that you can't get anyone else, and the, what they decide that thing is, is the budget. Right. And you have to be big and huge and loud, and you have to have the biggest special effects, the biggest stars, and if that's the only kind of movie you have, it's tiring. Sure. That there were, you don't see, like, like, the original Die Hard was a blockbuster. Jaws was a blockbuster. I mean, Jaws is essentially three dudes on a boat. Well, Jaws threatened an entire town. Yeah. I mean, like, people, like, like whole town couldn't swim because, well, they treated it like a whole town was threatened. But if the whole town just stayed out of the ocean, which is what most towns do on the on the coast anyway. Uh, Not on the 4th of July weekend. They would have been fine. Um, but there was a, there was a, there was a bit more of an existential threat in Jaws than, uh that other movie you just I mean, I love Age of Ultron. I like it a little bit less. It's a fun spectacle popcorn movie. But that's a movie where an evil robot is trying to wipe out all life on Earth by picking up a city and then dropping it. Right. That's different than, okay, there are tourists that are in danger. Uh, The chief of police, uh, a biologist, and an old grizzly trapper guy are going to go out on the thing to try to kill it. With right. barrels and explosives, yeah, and one handgun. <laughs> um, it's 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 weird because you could have a movie Die Hard again. The stakes are, I guess, if you own the bearer bonds, you're going to lose some money. Yeah, it thir- was it thirty four million dollars, I think, or something like that. Yeah, and like a hundred people at a party. Right. I mean, the worst thing happens. Um, the Mr. Nakatomi gets shot, right. and uh, you could lose a lot of people at a Christmas party. How ironic! Yeah, being shot in his own building, and there's a robbery. I mean, that's the. Wor- it's not like if Hans Gruber wins, then the entire city of Los Angeles is going to be a crater. <laughs> but it doesn't feel small. You can make small things feel big if the stakes are personal enough, and if you make it exciting. Well, I enough. think that might be your point of view inside of the narrative. Is yeah. if your narrative, like in the in the. Uh, what do you call them? The all the superheroes come together and fuck shit up. Oh, uh, the Avengers. The Avengers. Thank you. You just said uh, the Avengers movie. Your point of view is omniscient, mm-hmm. where um you can go in anything, see anything, do anything, and they'll they'll make the computers do it. Where inside of of Die Hard, your point of view is either uh, John McClane or Family Matters guy. Mm, some scenes with Hans Gruber, but it's it's very specifically it, it it's uh, people inside of a big fucking building or just outside of a big fucking building. So the narrative universe, because your per- your perceptions are constrained, the universe of the building inside of the narrative seems that much bigger. So I'm wondering if the um, the idea of you being more of a TV guy than a movie guy now mm. is the fact that... I'm not even watching that much TV these days. Well, it, the movies feel a lot more homogenous, I think. I think so. And I think it's because of that 
desperate need to make as much money as possible and do that thing that other things can't do, which is be as big and loud as possible. And sometimes that's fun. Yeah. But if that's all I was watching, if that's the only kind of media diet I had, it would get so old. Mm -hmm. And I need something, honestly, like a Daredevil, where they do not have the budget for that sort of stuff. Or I want something like... You know, Cheers. Yeah. I mean, how expensive was it to make an episode of Cheers? Most of the money is going to go to actors. Yeah. You have the set. Uh, Battlestar Galactica, I think, was a great example of a show that could have a MIG scale, where it is the 50,000 last human beings in the universe running from killer robots that wiped out their planet. That's big scale. That's huge. But they could do episodes that didn't have expensive space battles. They could have arguments about what human rights meant in this new status quo. And it mostly just be people talking and walking around the same 10 hallway sets that they have for the Galactica. Right. And it was great. And it felt big. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it's it's viewpoint constraint. Viewpoint constraint. Uh, I think the thing that TV has, and it does it by necessity, is budget constraint, where movies don't have that, so they need that constraint to be voluntary. Mm -hmm. And movie studios don't want that constraint. They're going to push a director to go more in the direction of big and huge. And I think that having something that can have a small scale, like Casey and I, we we talk a lot about uh, John Wick. John Wick is a movie that I didn't think existed anymore because it was a small-scale movie that was just about one guy's revenge. It was very personal. And he fights like 20 to 50 guys in this movie. It's not about the end of the world. You know, there isn't a super laser that fires a big blue beam up into the clouds that we see in every movie nowadays. <laughs> I'm fine Is that with really that. a thing? It totally is. Uh, most okay. super- I love superhero movies to death, and I'm one of those people who doesn't have superhero fatigue. Yeah. Because... It's not like there's this sudden wave of superheroes that are hitting me in the face. I've had these superheroes hitting me in the face since I was a kid. Right. But the new thing about it is they're doing it on the screen in live action. So I already know who Ant-Man and Luke Cage and all these guys are, but it's kind of cool to see these people that I've known since I was seven years old in a new way. And that's to me, is exciting. Um, I get the fatigue that other people have, but for me... um, I've kind of been waiting for this. Yeah, forever. it's uh, the thing about this is I'm, I'm getting this this movie fatigue. I'm just getting tired of movies. Um, I'm not saying that you should all join me in this. Oh it's no, not one no, of those. no, 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 no! Yeah. I don't, I don't think you're saying that at all. Okay, yeah, because a lot of people, I, I, I mean, comic books are really like everybody loves the really convoluted stories in this, in like Marvel and DC. Mm-hmm. I get that, and now they're finally seeing them in a more complex sort of real-time context. I could see why that's interesting. I think a lot of it is comic books, I think, again, are better at... They have that same lack of constraints that these big-budget movies have, but I think Mm. that the artists have more constraints. And they're also willing to be more experimental and weird. Okay. Um, Like, for instance, there's a couple comic books that would never get made as a movie, like uh, Chew by John Lehman and Rob Guillory. Right. Which is a story of a psychic cop who gets psychic impressions of the past of things that he eats. And he sometimes, in the course of an investigation, has to eat horrible things. There's also this weird apocalyptic bird flu thing. A buzzsaw of death rooster named Poyo who wears a luchador mask. And weird. There's like an alien connection. There's so much weird shit in this story. Um, there's that. There's things like sex criminals, which are about uh, a couple who, when they orgasm, it freezes time. Oh, yeah. And one of them works at a library and it's going out of business. And the guy works at a bank and they decide they're going to rob the bank while they have sex in like a closet and then rob the bank while everyone's frozen and then leave with the money and use it to save the library. Uh, it's a life of, it's bizarre. They would never allow that on even HBO. Right. 
it, if they do it on HBO, it's because it's adapted from a comic book. Or, you know, things like, you know, Southern Bastards, which is a crime drama that takes place in a small Alabama town where the crime boss is the local high school football coach. You're doing a thing that I've noticed that you do, is that when someone, such as me, uh, who frequently complains about superhero comics... Your defense is always with non-superhero comics. Because my defensive comic books, honestly, the place where I see the, the real positive stuff right. is is in the non-superhero world. That's Agreed. the growth industry of comics. Yeah. I, I love superheroes to death. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of great standalone comic things like uh, Miss Marvel, the Kamala Khan character, is a great standalone character. She exists in a shared universe, but it doesn't intrude all the time. So it's sadly, though, it's it's an outlier. Mm-hmm. That a lot of comic books nowadays, are, the continuity is just so, it's really intrusive. And like, for instance, there's a series called Thunderbolts, which the idea at this point in the series was that it was like the Suicide Squad. Criminals that are, you know, they've been caught and they want to reduce their sentences, so they go work for the government and do, you know, suicide missions. And I knew all of the characters in the book. I think the government liaison superhero good guy leading the team was Luke Cage. I'm on board. It had Man-Thing in it. I know who all these characters are. Giant in- size or regular size? Oh, a little bit of both. Okay. Oh, the 70s at Marvel. They like to smoke <laughs> a lot of pot and giggle about the stuff they can get away with. Yeah, yeah. That's how you can release a comic called Giant Size Man-Thing. Indeed. But um, I knew all these characters. I was familiar with the backdrop. Dude, just give me some stories. But then I realized, holy shit, even though I know all of these people, it relies on me knowing not only the 20-something issues that happened before this thing I bought, but another series that this one spun off from, and characters having spun off from other books. The amount of investment for me to enjoy just, I want to see Luke Cage lead a group of criminals to fight uh, bad guys. That's all I want. I just want to see bad guys forced to fight other bad guys. And I can't because it's so fucking confusing, even with characters that I know. That's the real thing, is that the comic book problem is they've been written for people who've been reading them for 20 years. And even though these characters are more recognizable than ever, there's only a handful of of superhero comic books coming out from both Marvel and DC that I could hand to a non-superhero lifer like myself. Yeah. So I usually don't use them to defend it. And nine times out of ten, there's very few superhero comic books, I think All-Star Superman being an exception, that I would hand to a non-comic book fan. Yeah, I'm, I'm not... I guess it is a bit of an accusation, but I do think, I, I do think it's almost necessary to view superhero comics and non-superhero comics as, as potentially completely separate things, even though they're often made by the same publishing companies. Often the same creators? Often the same creators. But the... Same medium, different genre. The same, well, yeah, but the medium looks different. I, I mean, because it's a visual, it's a, the medium is a piece of paper. There's a lot you can do with a piece of paper. And sometimes I think that's calling it just a different genre just sort of under undermines it. Well, it's like, you know, you could say that Family Guy and Adventure Time are yeah. the same thing, but no, I, so I realized not. I realized that when I walked into it, that, that but... Yeah, I think I might just have to leave that there. I you can even right. have, I mean, The Simpsons and Family Guy, if you want to make an even closer comparison. Fair. And one of those is way better than the other. It's, yeah. A lot of it is execution. Radio versus the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. 
Find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com and send us your feedback at info at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. so dense. Every single image has so many things going on.